Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to a new episode of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. I'm Thierry Narduzzi, back from my travels to find that Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS who usually hosts the show with me, has absented himself as if in protest. Instead, I'm joined by the excellent Lucy Dallas, a rare constant in the past few weeks' podcasting schedule. Lucy, thank you for womaning the fort through all our comings and goings. You're very welcome. I'm very happy to woman the fort. <laughs> do you think I could woman the barricades as well? I think I think you probably could woman the barricades. I okay. think you'd do that excellently. I'll do that. Um, I came back to find a few new reviews of the podcast, so uh, a huge thanks to the rather enigmatically named M, that's four M's, from the UK and SB111 from the US and Jamid La Vie, which is an interesting name, uh, from Australia. All or most comments and feedback are welcome. So if you haven't already reviewed us on iTunes, please do. It really does help us do what we do for better or for worse. And if you haven't already tried out a TLS subscription, you can do so now by searching the TLS subscriptions and type pod one in the offer section. You'll get six issues for just six pounds. Coming up on the show this week, as the World Cup in Russia triggers the usual fanfaronades from all countries, our lead piece this week, in a special issue more or less dedicated to the big questions facing Russia and Central Europe, is by Arkady Ostrovsky. Arkady considers the host nation's long and remarkably consistent history of using sport as a proxy for war and invasion. Elsewhere, E.J. Ionelli has looked into the story of the automobile in America, specifically as it pertains to teen culture. That the automobile is, when viewed with any semblance of objectivity, he says, a dangerous, expensive, dirty and demanding machine, a white elephant offering only a modicum of ostensible independence and convenience, imbued by its owners with the tyrannical power to disfigure our cities and ravage our countryside, perhaps makes it the consummate symbol of the myopic, selfish, consumerist mindset that the United States has cultivated and disseminated so successfully. EJ will be joining us on the line to discuss further. No sooner does a new photograph emerge of President Vladimir Putin engaged in sport, 
In recent years, we've seen him topless astride a horse, taking everyone to the ground in judo, arm wrestling, boxing, playing ice hockey and fishing so successfully for ancient amphora in the Black Sea, then it goes viral, attendant memes in tow. One of my favourites has him bare-chested straddling an otter, which is in turn straddling a hummingbird, if you can imagine that. But funny though that may seem, at least to my infantile sense of humour, the message behind these displays of sporting prowess could scarcely be more serious or sinister. As the world's eyes now turn to Russia as host of the World Cup, itself an honour bequeathed dripping in controversy and accusations of foul play, Arkady Ovstrovsky offers this week a masterly survey of the ways in which sport has often stood in for, indeed preempted war, and considers the rules of Putin's own distinctive game. Who will win and who will lose? All is still to play for. Arkady Ovstrovsky is on the phone now. Arkady, welcome. Thank you. As I said in my intro just then, this interlinked history of sport and war, it's, it's a long one, with perhaps three main acts, the Stalin's USSR, the Cold War, and finally Putin's Russia. So to synthesise your thesis somewhat, let's start at the beginning. How did Stalin set the framework for all of this, and how has Putin adapted tactics to his own ends? Well, I don't think that Stalin was actually unique in this. Uh, I, I mean, sport has been preparation for war um, and as sort of a proxy uh, for military for a very long time. And, and indeed, in all the empires, in the Roman Empire, in the British Empire, where sport was very tightly connected to, to the military. And of course, the authoritarian regimes and totalitarian regimes, be it Stalin's Soviet Union or Hitler's Germany, uh, paid a lot of attention to sport. Um, they saw it as an expression of the superiority of, of their political regimes. The Soviet Union held physical culture exercise parades from 1919 to 1954. Uh, there was a special program called sort of the standards of uh, you know, the, the defense and labor, which were uh, sport norms, which everybody had to pass, and the uh, young people were sort of rolled onto it. So in that sense, you know, the Soviet Union was not unique. And indeed, you know, when George Orwell was reflecting on the role of sport after the famous 1945 game between Moscow, Dynamo and Arsenal, he was writing about this curse of, of, of sport and as a substitute, as a sort of accompaniment to jingoism and nationalism. But during the Cold War, this obviously became much more of a symbolic representation of the geopolitical contest. Um, the Soviets took it very seriously. They had professional sportsmen, professional athletes, ran doping programs, not just in the Soviet Union, but in the Soviet bloc, pretending that they were amateurs. Uh, you know, the East Germans were very famous for that. And I think what changed massively in Putin's years is, uh, you know, that sport ceased to occupy that ideological space after the collapse of the Soviet Union. But that coincided with the rise of uh, paid television. And television sort of swept, if you like, sport from the domain of war and geopolitical contest into the domain of entertainment and a show. I mean, there is a strikingly clear line of examples that you, that you give, isn't there, for the theatre of sport preceding that of war, specifically in, in Russia? Uh, yes, and uh, you know, since uh, you know the two very often uh, went together, the Summer Olympics uh, in Moscow in 1980 uh, was boycotted by over 60 countries because of the Soviet invasion in Afghanistan. I mean, there was only a few months between them, and in Putin's uh, years in 2008, that was the peak. But actually, the whole thing, you know, with sport, the obsession with sport, bringing sport back 
initially as entertainment, initially as sort of a nice accompaniment to the narrative of Russia's resurgence, started in early 2000s, roughly the same time as Putin brought back the Soviet national anthem. And this was sort of a symbolic return of great geopolitical status. And in 2008, this picked when Russia beat the Netherlands in the Euro Cup final, uh, sorry, the quarterfinal, I think it was. And that produced a enormous sort of euphoria, elation in Moscow of the kind that I've never seen in my life. I was watching actually that game. As it happened, I was sitting in Tbilisi, uh, the capital of Georgia, this, I think, was in June, and I've just returned from one of the separatist republics, which I was visiting, and, and watching this sort of frenzy this of patriotism and elation, sitting in Tbilisi, knowing how tense things were, to me had a sort of a double meaning. And, I, and then, of course, a few, few weeks later, Russia invaded uh, Georgia, had a five-day war with a, a tiny former Soviet republic in the Caucasus. And, of course, the most famous example is now the uh, Sochi uh, Olympics, which seamlessly uh, morphed into first the annexation of Crimea and then the war in eastern Ukraine. It made me think as well when you say that, that there was the era of the new um, television and suddenly the games, you know, everybody all over the world could see them. It's also, sport is also, um, it became an area where you could make a lot of money. No, absolutely. And and I think it was actually that side of sport that, that exercised... Uh, forgive the metaphor, uh, exercise Putin um, as much as the, its ideological meaning. It was actually the entertainment value or the merger of the entertainment value and geopolitics, uh, their merger into, uh, in sport, their merger in the television show. And at the same time as sport became, uh, you know, geopolitical contest became entertainment, you know, war in a way also became entertainment. War mm. became sport um, roughly at the same time, you know, in, in the 1990s. Uh, for, you know, first, and you know, with the war in, in Kuwait, uh, which was the first televised war. But Putin took it much, you know, whereas those wars uh, were just televised, Putin actually went a lot further. And he started uh, not televising war, but using television uh, as a medium of war, actually staging wars in a way, you know, what's been so, so shocking uh, is that the war in Ukraine and the annexation of Crimea were led by television. Mm. It was not simply showing what the Russian military were doing. The sort of the plot, the television narrative evolved first and then was backed by the by the military. And of course, as you say, you know, this uh, once you uh, have sport as a as a huge business, the scope for making money and, you know, and corruption grows as well. And uh, perhaps it's quite symbolic and not entirely accidental that one of the biggest corruption scandals was uh, was around the building the infrastructure for the Sochi Olympics, which Russia spent at the time $50 billion, more than any country. I mean, it was a staggering amount of money, and a lot of it disappeared into offshore bank accounts, and uh, mm-hmm. etc. And of course, there was corruption. You know, we know that war and corruption go very often hand in hand. In a way, war, uh, in the way it played out on Russian television, was a cover-up for corruption, as well as the opportunity to make that money. So yes, the doping scandals uh, in Sochi, once you've spent $50 billion on building the infrastructure for the Sochi Olympics, you don't want to leave anything to chance. You want to get your money worth back. (laughs) So they were running this extraordinary, uh, really extraordinary clandestine uh, operation uh, in Sochi while bombarding the audiences with the 
military style sort of victories uh, and triumphs of uh, Russian gold medal winners. The FSB, the successor organization to the KGB, was running this operation, passing, you know, tampering with the urine samples, passing them through a hole in the wall. I mean, it was just kind of stuff from McMafia or Monty Python, depending on um, which one you prefer. In, in, in your piece, you, you sort of suggest that Putin's kind of hold on mass culture uh, through television, and then you also mention his involvement in the funding um, and execution of a film called uh, Going Vertical, which perhaps you can you can tell us about. But you do suggest ultimately that Putin's hold on mass culture is also sort of the beginning of, of his demise, which sort of delineates the limits of his control as well, or his appeal to future generations. Well, th- this is a complicated story. In a sense, you know, Putin uh, came to power on the back of television. Uh, Putin was the first sort of uh, television-made president of Russia, uh, and therefore, in fact, the first celebrity. Uh, no leader of Russia had the same celebrity status. More familiar, perhaps, to Western um, voters and Western countries, but um, Putin was the first solely sort of television-made president. Because if you think back, obviously the Soviets had a very different sort of legitimacy, and they, uh, which stemmed from first the revolution, then the victory in the Second World War, the lies, repressions, etc. Uh, you know, the new leaders of Russia, Boris Yeltsin. Uh, came to, uh, he didn't actually control television. The, Russia did have uh, a, a great deal of the freedom of speech at the time. But obviously, the, the, everybody knew the power of television. But Putin was the first one who was actually made by television. Having realized what power it contained, he actually ruled by television and by show. And television remains uh, one of the main uh, tools of political control uh, in the country. Perhaps it's preferable, uh, in my mind, you know, certainly it's preferable to hard repression and show trials, although those are coming fast and thick as well. But on the whole, it's been, you know, Putin has ruled through manipulation rather than through uh, just repression and violence. And the the Kremlin certainly assembled uh, this edifice. It still, you know, it pays a lot of attention. He hasn't funded uh, himself privately this film, Going Vertical, which is about the famous uh, 1972 game of basketball between the Soviet professionals and uh, and Americans in Munich uh, in the 1972 Olympics. And this was there was a famous replay in the last three seconds, and the Soviets beat uh, Americans. Anyway, this film, which was released uh, late December last year, uh, became sort of a, a national symbol, and the television which participated in its funding was hailing it as, a, as an example of Russia's both sporting and moral and geopolitical victory and, and victory of showmanship. Because they're saying this is the film that's just beating all the the Hollywood blockbusters. Now the interesting thing is that both in the film, uh, the Russian sports team beats Americans by, as the coach says, uh, adopting American methods, and so is the Russian film industry is adopting Hollywood methods and actually following the script of a famous film, Miracle, um, the 2004 Disney production uh, film about. Um, an American victory in, in, in an ice hockey game against the Soviet Union uh, in 
1980. And it's interesting yes. because you, you mentioned the viewing figures for um, going vertical as, as 12 million, but then you also mentioned a spoof uh, that was done by an online um, like a, a vlogger, um, which garnered, I think, 9 million. So there's not really that much in it, which is sort of quite encouraging. And I think overall you do seem quite hopeful in this respect. You say that what those rising up against Putin want more than anything is honesty. Yes, I think that's that's right. I think what you know they've built this television empire only to find out that young people, particularly in the cities, uh, particularly in Moscow, uh, the young educated middle class just simply don't watch television in the same way as you know people in the West. Are, what you know, young people in the West are watching less and less television as well. Things are getting much more customized, and they're getting their news and their entertainment from from online, from the internet, which is still relatively free, right? So. There is a new demand for honesty. There is a demand for sincerity, and we can see this in the this extraordinary viewing figures of uh, online bloggers, various internet, you know, the people who create various internet content. But there is another way in which the World Cup is playing out as we speak. The Putin model of the world is based on a very firm belief that everything is plotted and everything can be plotted, everything can be scripted, and everything is conspiracy. Nothing, you know, history doesn't have a free will of itself, uh, just like people don't have a free will. And everything is run from some high office. It's very much part of the DNA of the Secret Service from which he comes, uh, and it's very much kind of a Soviet DNA. And what's happening uh, is that the reality is actually bursting into, as, as we know, uh, you know, history does have much more information at his disposal than, than people who sit in high offices. And what's happening with the World Cup now is actually a very interesting phenomenon because Moscow has been flooded by foreign fans. There is a, a wonderful atmosphere, a sort of a real carnival. The police uh, and the security services, uh, which are quite, you know, can be quite draconian, totally lawless, in their impudence uh, and repression have been reined back because Russia is trying to show it's got a friendly best face to the world. But the effect it's having is uh, not the one I don't think that Kremlin had calculated, which is people actually saying, look, it's much nicer to live with police being constrained and not wielding truncheons. It's much better to have open borders and it's actually quite fun. And so uh, there is a big question in my mind when the World Cup is over and the foreign fans uh, go back home. If Russia tries, if the Kremlin tries to restore this sort of grim uh, mobilization atmosphere of fear and repression and threats, which uh, have been so dominant uh, in the past four years, whether people who already kind of had this taste, if you like, of a different, friendly, sympathetic, um, sort of global, urban Russia, whether they will just say, okay, well, we're going back to where, you know, the show is over, we're going to submit to whatever we had before, or whether they're actually going to start comparing their situation, let's say, in two, three months' time, with this sort of atmosphere of festival and carnival. And that's what I mean is that life actually has a logic of its own. And, and the problem with the, all the security services, and that's why they're not very good at running things, is they don't respect life itself. They don't respect reality. And whether they're trying to manipulate it through doping scandals, through annexation of Crimea, or making films like Going Vertical, usually, as we know from history, 
you know, history has an upper hand. Arkady Ostrovsky, thank you very much for your time. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you. Thank if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you. Here's a question. Is the American car industry responsible for all youth culture? The answer is almost certainly no, but bear with me. In 1951, the song Rocket 88, often credited as one of the first rock and roll records, appeared, basically a groovy 12-bar advert for a real car, an Oldsmobile. A couple of years later, along came the mighty Chuck Berry, with the huge hits Maybelline, her Cadillac Coupe de Ville versus his V8 Ford. There was also no particular place to go, riding along in my automobile. That's just two of them. Chuck Berry told an interviewer in 1967 that he had a phase of about four or five years of writing songs about cars. Eddie Cochran is working hard to try and borrow the car in Summertime Blues, and in Something Else, he admires a girl in the first verse and a car in the second. A few years later, the whole of the Beach Boys' third album was about cars. Little Deuce Coupe, the title track has quite technical lyrics, just a little deuce coupe with a flathead mill, but she'll walk a thunderbird like she's standing still. There's also a heap more wonderful and well-loved songs like this. I could go on and on, but I won't. The distinctly American phenomenon of the car, as the teenage male rite of passage, is explored this week by E.J. Ionelli, reviewing Machines of Youth by Gary S. Cross, which deals with America's car obsession. Thanks very much for joining us, E.J. Um, can I ask... Why do you think car culture became a distinctly American phenomenon? Well, I suppose it would be just space. America has a, a, a great deal of space, and so the automobile was was necessary. And first, the railroad kind of filled that function. 
But then with the advent of the automobile, there is a certain amount of convenience to, with the, associated with the automobile that you don't get with the train necessarily. It's your own private space. It is. And when I think of the, you know, the mental rationale that goes on when we're debating as a family whether or not to take the car, whether we cycle somewhere, whether we bike or take the, take the bus, there's always that element of, of convenience of will we be able to, to leave home when we want to and will, will we be able to arrive when we want to and go from door to door? And then will we be able to leave that destination when we want to and return home? Yeah, I was I was trying to think about why it would be a particularly American thing. Um, and in fact, saying to Thea earlier that it might be because the UK is so much smaller. You get to a lot of places by bike, actually, whereas in America, you really can't. You've just got to travel such long distances that you need a machine or a horse. And the public transport infrastructures have developed in, in, in those nations accordingly. Is, is that why you think in Gary Cross's book, the South, especially South California, sorry, becomes comes across as, as, as very much the, the place where car culture really took off? Is that because that part of the country lagged behind the, the Northeast, say, in terms of infrastructure and so on, trains? Yes, and I would also say in terms of density, the Northeast and the New England area is known for just being very dense. And so I suppose automobiles were more of a necessity. And that's, of course, changed. And, and I think he makes reference to this in the book as he talks about the demise of car culture, because as they start, um, the states and, and the federal governments begin building roads to accommodate all these automobiles, there becomes less of a desire to take them or less of an opportunity for, for cruising because of all the traffic. Mm. Before we talk about the, the demise of the car culture, let's talk about the rise of it, because it wasn't always seen so favourably, was it? I think Woodrow Wilson particularly didn't take to the car. No, and I think during its early years, there was a tendency to see the automobile as any newfangled invention. And I kind of lead off with taking an objective stance towards the automobile. And there are a lot of reasons to dislike the automobile and prefer other modes of transport. In a lot of ways, the car doesn't make sense. But there are certain qualities that I think appeal to the American mindset. It's strange because there are distinctly American aspects of automobiles as a, as a phenomenon and, and why Americans kind of glommed onto them. But um, you see a fetishization of the automobile in other cultures as well. The particularly American strands of it, though, you, I mean, I suppose they're in part what you described at the beginning there, where you, you, you talked about basically the freedom to come and go as you please. Well, there's also the fact that the automobile industry kind of hit its stride in America as well. Yeah, for a while, Detroit was synonymous with automobiles and still is. I don't know if Cross ever relates it to, to specifically why California. It just happened to be a hotbed of modding. So the automobile kind of rose up in California for the reasons we just kind of illustrated because there was a bit more space. But also there are these socioeconomic strands and, and maybe those are the, the factors that might not necessarily be what we consider distinctly American, but just happened to exist in America at that time. And so you have this strange paradox where you have these class aspirations with the automobile. And yet there's this distinctly almost blue collar or working class ability to to mod the automobile and so i think because in america you had 
these aspirational strands of uh, of culture where people saw having an automobile as the the height of luxury and yet affordability and availability just made it put it put the automobile in the hands of all can i ask you to talk us through the modding and specifically um hot rodding and what 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 was the place of that in 1950s culture it's strange because i'm not a modder myself as I mentioned, the appeal of the automobile escapes me, and yet I do a lot of um, translations for Mercedes from German to English, and they have a performance division called AMG. And so there's this distinct way of writing about the the automobile that they have, which is very, very macho, very uh, testosterone-fueled. Yeah. And I think maybe the one, one way I can theorize the... The appeal of the automobile for the youth is that as your, um, you know, particularly young boys are becoming men, a the, the automobile is an expression of masculinity. It's an expression of if you can mod it, it's an expression of capability. It's even an artistic expression. It was also, as you say, it, it, it was quite heavily gendered in that um, the, in the book says and that you say that it's quite specifically a a male rite of passage and also it's certainly in that youth culture thing it's very much about you get the car so you can get the girl or the car and the girl are often intertwined but as you say in your piece the girl is often at a disadvantage in the car it's not her car she's not driving she's not in control you know he parks up somewhere there's a whole kind of trope of those kind of situations aren't there it is and that's what's strange is because you see these very traditional gender roles perpetuated even in car clubs and so you have essentially the male modders, and I say this kind of anecdotally, it's just, it just has been my experience in, I, I think it's very hard to avoid car culture in America and the modding culture. I mean, you, you certainly come into contact with it. And so from my vantage, it does very much seem to be, yeah, male modder and female groupie. And it was interesting because a few weeks ago, I had some recurring thoughts on this subject, and so I started researching it, and there does seem to be a very... Uh, an attempt to write that balance of late with a lot of all-female, proudly all-female auto shops mm-hmm. and and maybe a, a rise of female modders. Now, I don't know if this statistically amounts to anything, but it was interesting to just kind of come across it on Google and see that there were some, some all-female or quite a few all-female auto repair shops and then some female modding clubs. Well, that, that is interesting. I mean, I, I should say I've just got back from the US and a road trip through Vermont and New Hampshire and uh, Massachusetts and Maine. And so I spent a lot of the time uh, in the passenger seat, I should I should say, just staring out the window, conducting my own sort of surveys. Uh, and the truck thing, the pickup truck, I mean, that, that <laughs> seems to be a unique repository of, of, of fraught masculinity there. And I suppose of, of, of class distinctions as well, as soon as you sort of edge your way out of the city, the trucks start to sort of take over. And interestingly, the, the, the back of them is always empty. <laughs> Yeah, it is interesting, and um, I mean, maybe it's it's too reductive, but I do kind of see that as a form of compensation uh, for something. <laughs> um, there is a certain personality type that re- that to whom the truck really appeals, and it, again, this is something that I reference in the piece. And I was I was worried about stereotyping, and yet there is a certain truck type, and you're pretty likely, you know, when you see the diesel trucks with the with the exhaust 
pluming out of the stacks in the back and somebody's gunning it 40 miles an hour in a 25 mile an hour zone, you're pretty likely to see a certain type behind that wheel. And you, well, you, you say there about about types and uh, types of people and types of cars. I wonder how significant, and I suppose this is a broader kind of socioeconomic point, um, how significant is it, again, judging from the passenger seat, that there seem to be an inordinate number of, of foreign car makes. So Toyota and Kia cars seem to have replaced Ford and other American brands. Uh, in Trump's America, I, I have no idea. Um, the I just did a, a brochure for a, the Spokane Automobile Show, and one thing that I was fascinated to discover is that even though that there have been profound efficiency gains and range gains in electric automobiles and hybrid automobiles, car manufacturers are confined consigning those to a to a niche, and r- remarkably they're concentrating almost all their efforts away from sedans and on trucks and SUVs because they, in America, they are purchased by far in greater numbers than than any other car. Wow, so I, w- I was about to say, um, we've got, just got time for one more question. I think you may in a way have answered it. I was going to say, do you think that, that the car still has the same power or, or is the culture declining? But from what you say, it sounds like the trucks are very much um, in the ascendancy at the moment. Bewilderingly so, but then again, they have made, the car manufacturers have made certain efficiency gains, nothing on the level of electric automobiles, which I find kind of baffling, but... Um, yeah, they have made efficiency gains where you're getting a lot more miles to the gallon from from an SUV because they have cylinder shut off, et cetera, et cetera, um, and various features that that lend themselves to fuel economy. So, in short, you don't you don't buy Gary Cross's point really that um, new technologies have overtaken the car and that the you know perhaps cars just aren't that important anymore. Oh, yes and no, and I would have to say that I agree with him in part because for the examples that I that I gave at the end of the piece, you know, a block and a half away from me, the construction crews are out right now taking what was essentially a five lane thoroughfare down to three lanes in order to make it more pedestrian friendly. They're, they're widening the sidewalks. And so I would say that the pendulum is kind of swinging in the opposite direction because it's, that project isn't alone. There's also another project about five blocks away from me where they're doing the same thing. They're restriping into three lanes from five. And so I would say that the pendulum is kind of swinging in the other direction and, and planners are at least trying to find a, a greater balance between different modes of transport and people are starting to see the sense in other modes of transport. But I know that millennials were, were hailed as the, the anti-car culture, but as they find more material wealth, they are selling out and purchasing cars, uh, just like the, the, the baby boomers went from hippies to, to um, 80s Wall Street types. Well, um, EJ Ionelli, thank you very much. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you for joining us. Okay, thank you for having me. Um, I did notice when I was in New York, I promised not to do this for the duration of the podcast, <laughs> by the way, when, when I, was I was in America. When I was on my road <laughs> When I was on holiday. America. Um, I did notice that there were far more cycle lanes than there had been previously. And obviously I know that New York is, is not at all representative of the rest of the country, but mm. that, that, did, that did give me some pause, pause for thought. Yeah, but it sounds it sounds like a drop in the ocean, doesn't it? Though yeah. I, I, mean, I find it a bit mystifying, I have to say, because I don't really buy it. I mean, I I I love all the I love the culture. I love it in the songs. I like I like songs about cars. Do you think it is a uniquely American phenomenon? Because I mean, we we have hot rodding in, or we call it souping up, don't we? In 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 the UK, and that's that's very much so. a thing. I I I I do think of it as an American thing. Mm. 
Really? Certainly in the culture, the films, the songs, as, as you said, and I think you'll maybe maybe you could play us out with, with your rendition. Certainly of... not. <laughs> the, but the, it's just it's funny how how entrenched they were because I did grow up singing those Beach Boys songs, and I realised quite recently that I was singing them phonetically. I had no idea what they were talking about. The middle eight of Little Do Scoop is she's got a competition clutch with a four on the floor, and she purrs like a kitten till the lake pipes roar. I had absolutely no idea, and I just used to just. <laughs> Sing it and sing it. It's a well, wonderful it's, song. It's the truth. It's, it's the same. With, I could talk you through it if you want, but I, I, I won't. It's the same with Greece. I hadn't, I hadn't oh, yes, fully just, appreciated yeah. quite how rude. how crude <laughs> the, the lyrics to to the songs are, and I, I suppose it made me think twice about uh, a friend of mine at school when we were ten. Her parents allowed her to have a Greece themed <laughs> birthday party. Yeah, you don't want to get too close. I had no idea. I mean, I don't, I don't feel like we can read those lyrics on. On this podcast. No, let's gather our skirts around us and not read those (laughs) lyrics. Very rude. Um, um, Well, thankfully, that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to EJ Ionelli and Arkady Ostrovsky. This week in the paper, we have a piece by Stephen Lovell on Russia's awkward relationship with the truth. And Sarah Young makes a case for Varlam Shalomov as the most powerful writer to emerge from Stalin's gulags. Elsewhere in the paper, we have a new history of Chernobyl. And Muriel Zaga reviews a fresh crop of French films. And we have an exclusive extract from Tim Winton's new novel, The Shepherd's Hut. For now, though, from Lucy and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.